Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. Okay, so we are back one more time, and this is feeling like spring a little bit. Uh, good to be in Detroit, good to be in New Center, good to be in the Sampson Foundation. Kari Frazier here with Black Coffee through Detroit is Different with co-host Frida Sampson. Frida, hey. how are you? I am awesome. How are you today? Good, good. You're representing Wakanda. You got the Hey Auntie shirt on. You see? You see? <laughs> Going Killmonger style. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, we have back a guest and one of her, uh, I would say, like uh, closest of arms and mentees and friends and sisters in life we have aurora harris and mama neb or gloria house as well how are both of you good Doing good thank you thank you yes yes so we're gonna open up with mama neb because she came on the show before and she was like i should have done some reading and i'm like yes you should do some reading and then it just ran into the next you know i've been trying to get aurora on but detroit is different and then frida was like you know Aurora has ties to this space because poetry was welcomed in this space through Aurora. Mm. So we just ran into these discussions and you're about to get blessed with the poetry and the artistry of Gloria House, Mama and Neb. And we also want Aurora Harris to do a piece. And then we can get more into the story of Aurora Harris and her relationship to Gloria House and Broadside Press a little bit. Then we'll get more into Aurora's story. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. So. So with this, you're going to get, like I always say, I'm a rapper. Uh, Rap and poetry are kind of like cousins or friends in (laughs) arms. And one of the best people with words that I know, very graceful all the time. That's the word that I always think of when I think of Mama and Ed or Gloria House. So Dr. House is going to bless us with some poetry. And she's going to read it in the eloquence <coughs> that she always reads and uh, provide us the artistry That's it. that she always gives us. Bring uh, it up. Thank you so much. I'm trying to decide what's appropriate to read from the new publication. Um, this book, entitled Medicine, uh, was published in September. Of 2017. Of, of 17, right. And um, so it's still just recently outed, right? Mm-hmm. So, so while you're looking, can you tell us why you named it Medicine? Um, it's a collection of poems that have to do with um, spiritual sustenance, how to survive and how to continue to celebrate life and to trust life and to have faith in life. Um, it encourages us to um, turn to the ancestors it encourages, the poems encourage us to seek our, the depths of our own spiritual awareness and, and being. And I thought of all that as a kind of medicine to mm. keep us going. And um, when I was trying to decide what the title of the book was going to be, I was driving to work one morning and the, something just said, the title of the book is Medicine. And I thought, <laughs> People will think that's a really crazy title. And 
But the title of the book is Medicine. <laughs> so the title of the book is Medicine, and actually people understand it very well. I generally don't have to do much explaining at all. They, they understand, oh, medicine for our survival, thriving, yes. healing, um, continuing in this period uh, of time. Beautiful. So um, I think I'll start out, well, maybe I should start out with medicine. Now, I'll start out with another poem about us as a people historically. I entitled it This Dirge, This Hunger. And um, it's a poem about the fact that for these centuries now, we have pushed, struggled, fought um, to join this North American culture, this United States culture. And, and you know, we're learning that uh, there's, there's not a great deal of value there to be joined, <laughs> right? Um, and that we should be engaged in creating something that's far more valuable, far more humane, um, something that will move the human race uh, closer to, to our spiritual um, meaning as a human race. So this poem says, let's give up that hunger to be a part of something that is really <coughs> not all that good. And let's look to what who we are and what we have and find the beauty and celebrate that. So, this dirge, this hunger. One, we fought to belong, sang a long and sad song to belong. A hymn hundreds of years old, rising from the bones on the ocean floor, gathering the plantation's baritones, heaving bass voices of Mississippi chain gangs, moaning like the saints in black belt backwood churches, this keening, this anthem, this dirge, this hunger, to think we yearn to join this army of destruction. Hmm. Leave this great lie to those who designed it. Choose yes and fertile soil and confident step and calm. Two, let it be. Let it be as it is. Let it be as it is becoming. May it be as clouds sailing and rain anointing the rivers flowing. Let us ride with the rivers flow. Let us give our going to the dance of creation. May it be water rushing and whispering breezes or whirlpool and wind. Let us trust the going. Let us not fear to rediscover the path we lost. Let us seek the refuge within our souls. Seek the safe place in roots in the center of the earth. Let us kiss the morning blush. Let us bathe in light beams. May we greet the blessings of silence. May we soon know the rapture of homecoming. May it be, may it be, ashe. Three, I don't feel no ways tired. We come too far from where we started from. Nobody told us the road would be easy. I don't believe it brought me this far to leave me. No ways tired. No ways tired, gonna keep my mind stayed on coming home. Gonna lay down that stranger burden. Won't study that war no more. Gonna run on run on, see what the end will be. Gonna shout and tell the story, run on, see what the end will be. 
may it be, may it be, may we know the rapture of homecoming, of coming home to ourselves. Ashe, ashe, asheo. Wow. Is it okay if I snap? (laughs) 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 Hand claps and finger snaps. You see? That was awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad it had meaning for you. Wow. So you made reference to a couple of different things. So uh, definitely the journey here to America, which seemed to be like part one. Mm Mm-hmm. Part two, the challenges in America. Part three, breaking away from it. Right, is, right. Did I interpret that correctly? That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Right. And being caught up, you know, in this culture and thinking that the only way was to find our way into it and to be mm. accepted into it. Mm. And, you know, how, how sad that is. I'd like to read just one more poem from, I'd like to read the title poem of the book since, um, you know the question about the title. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. All Go. right. So, medicine. Comfrey leaves on the forehead for a fever. Asphidity in a muslin pouch around the neck against colds and pneumonia. Pungent odor infusing a tattered undershirt with a mustard-colored aura. It was the smell of grandmother's protection through the winter chill. Medicine for thin limbs, medicine for spirit. Echinacea and golden seal for cleansing the blood, cayenne for warmth. She knew the lore of curing, harvested nearby roots and leaves. Once we knew how to heal. We knew the fit pulses to drain and close any wound. Call the wound slavery. Call the wound torture. Call the wound humiliation. Call the wound ignorance. Call the wound separation from kin. Call the wound denial of truth. Call the wound absence of love. Call it by whatever name. Once we knew the remedy. Burn the sage, settle into its circle. Sit down in the quiet. Wait for the ancestors' whispers. Greet them with the drumbeat of your heart. They know the healing miracles. I'll leave medicine. <laughs> That's, that sums it up so beautifully. Both your explanation to kind of get our mm-hmm. minds mm-hmm. prepared, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. wow, mm-hmm. without that, that really resonates. Good, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad. Good, it's beautiful. So when do you have your next poetry reading? Actually, I'm glad you asked because there is one coming up. Uh, On April 11th, I'm going to read from Medicine again. And I want to make sure that all of my friends who were out of town or whatever when the book debuted, Mm I hope they will come and um, hear the reading. Um, April 11th at U of D Mercy. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the library there. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. What yeah. time? Six o'clock. Six PM? Mm-hmm. Um, we must make sure we write that down so that we can we can push that out a couple more okay. times over All the right. next few weeks. And All right. thank you. I, I will absolutely do my very best to be there. Oh what a privilege great. to be able to sit next to you while you re- read your poetry. It's it's like a seat of honor. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Frida. It's absolutely. wonderful. Golly, that's wonderful. 
Wow. Okay. So I think we're going to move into um, featuring Aurora, but I, I brought some things I wanted to tell people about quickly. Okay. 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 Um, I want people to know about Home Sweet Sanctuary, Idlewild Families Celebrate a Century. Um, this is a book that I wrote a few years ago about the historic settlement in uh, northern Michigan created by African American families. And it has um, prevailed, it has the families there have persevered now over a century. I like people to know that this still exists, that this beautiful sanctuary for black people and for black culture still exists, and that people are trying to restore it, and people are buying properties and recreating them and reimagining uh, the community that existed there. So mm. I'd like people to know about that. That book is available from Wayne State Press. Now, do they still have the annual poetry uh, event I don't think they've had it for the last few years. Okay. There was a young brother who was organizing that poetry in the woods. I think he That's called it. it. Yes. Yeah, but I don't think we. <coughs> I don't think it's happened for the last few years. Somebody should take that on again. It was a beautiful thing. It really was. It's. Mm -hmm. It's indeed okay. Um, this book is um, a. Oh, I'm making noises. Oh no, you okay? Um, I did what the. Um, main library here in Detroit calls its annual catalog. They invited me to write something for 2017 on the 67 rebellion mm -hmm. and what has happened in our city since then. And um, I tried to give an overview of 50 years of struggle, activity, art production, music, poetry, etc. And I, I really want people to know about that. I think they might find that useful. Um, I had I had done another catalog for uh, for the main library, and um, it was on uh, Dudley Randall and the African American Black poetry arc over the from its beginning to uh, contemporary days. And I think also this African American book list on Broadside Press and the legacy of Black poets might be useful to people. I have to tell you, Dr. House, um, I've been doing Java and Jazz with the Detroit Public Library for the 16 of the 17 years that it's been in existence. And mm -hmm. every year when they set the book list out, as people are coming in to gather to listen to this amazing jazz from these amazing artists, it is like a little bit of a, a day after Thanksgiving sale <laughs> when it comes to trying to get a hold to one of those books. They are flying off the tables instantaneously. People have such appreciation and, and, and love for the narrative That's and for the book recommendation. Yeah, That's it's wonderful to know. I really wanted you to know that. But right. so the one on Broadside and Dudley and Black Poets won an award, a national award for the library. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. And, and this one on the 67 Rebellion is into its second printing because there's been such a demand for it. And these, that makes me so happy that wow. people really want to read that. The other thing that I'd like to tell people about is this book called Mapping the Water Crisis, which is the product of research a group of us did here in the city um, to show that um, the massive turnoffs of, of people's water, people's access to water, 
is really um, a political strategy and really has very little to do with the infrastructure or making sure that bills get paid or whatever. Um, we found in our research that there's a correspondence between the neighborhoods where water is being shut off and where people are being forced out of their homes due to foreclosure. And it became very obvious in this research that that was a strategy to conjoin turning off the water with the tax foreclosures mm -hmm. and to, over a period of time, really decimate those communities. And now we're seeing that the closure of schools is, is also a part of that strategy because schools functioned as a kind of anchor for mm -hmm. communities. And as we have seen, um, 194 schools closed in the city of Detroit. We can now drive through those spaces where the houses are abandoned and they're long stretches of wasteland. So that's not incidental, coincidental, it's deliberate. And um, we have a young woman who's an architect who's brilliant at um, mapping this coincidence of home foreclosures and water mm. shutoffs, right? So at this moment, there are at least 70,000 households in Detroit where there's no running water. Hmm. And wow. anybody can imagine the kind of crisis that we're setting up for ourselves in terms of health and disease when that many people are not able to carry out just regular everyday grooming. And one last thing to show, share. Oh no, because I got to talk about this. You wanted to hear about this. Mm -hmm. One last thing I want to talk about is um, this book, Hands on the Freedom Plow, which is um, a collection of essays written by women who were in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, remembering our experiences and the political work that we did. Um, if, if people want to understand um, the freedom movement more deeply than just demonstrations and rallies and marches, mm -hmm. um, this is a book they might be interested in because we talk about what we did, we got what we did when we got up in the morning, what did we do in a day, in a given day, um, what kind of work was involved, what relationships were built between ourselves as young organizers and the local folk. Mm. So that's a book I want you to know. And finally, <laughs> finally, um, actually, uh, Kari asked me about this book. Um, this book came out of my dissertation at U of M. Uh, U of M Ann Arbor, um, I was curious about how uh, land and the spaces that we occupy impact our, ourselves and our sense of who we are, how space actually is very much tied to our sense of identity, both individually and collectively as, as a people. Um, and so while I was working on the PhD, I started really um, reading um, primarily European writers who had started thinking about what they called spatial politics. Uh, scholars in the United States were a little less, uh, a little more reticent about this field because when you look at space and politics, you realize that there are haves and have-nots mm -hmm. and that the capitalist owners in the United States also control space and land, right? So if you're a scholar and you are already, you know, you already have an allegiance to your capitalist culture, then you really don't want to call out what actually happens. But um, 
wealth, for example, is so directly tied to ownership of land, right, and control of land and the natural resources from the land, but also the capacity to create facilities and factories and places where natural resources can be turned into product, et cetera. So understanding um, our relationship to the spaces where we dwell is really, really important. Um, we are, we have been historically um, kept and retained in, in ghettos, in poverty-stricken areas. Um, we have lived in places where we don't own the property and where people can exact all kinds of unreasonable mm -hmm. prices uh, from us. Um, our children go to schools that are more and more like prisons, right? And so many of our young men, but now increasingly young women, are incarcerated in prisons uh, during the very years when they would be developing, developing themselves and you know, enjoying maybe their most productive years. So space in the United States, prisons represent sort of one end of the spectrum of how space is used politically in the United States to contain, restrain, control. Um, and, and that's what I uh, brought out in this book. Um, the two models that I looked at were the Rensen in downtown Detroit and Jackson Maximum Security Prison, and I saw them as two ends of, of a spectrum, right, of how space mm -hmm. is used gotcha. politically. Yeah. <coughs> so anyway, it's some, and nowadays this whole, sp when I was doing that work, the whole spatial issue was not very much on the table, but it's become a really big sort of, what, uh, subject in discourse these days. Um, people are talking a lot about the commons and about use of public space and how public space should be designed to engage as many people as possible. So the book has some relevance to the current issues that are being raised. So that's it for me. Okay. <laughs> Can you, um, <laughs> while you're here, and I know you're, you're going to uh, leave us early, but you're leaving us in the hands of somebody that you're Absolutely. real tight with. Can <laughs> right. you give a formal introduction for Aurora, for her reading, to give like a preface? because I figured that'd be cool. Right. Um, Aurora is one of our finest poets, one of our finest oh. young poets. Thank you. Someone who has really mastered um, the aesthetics of poetry, really focused seriously on what is poetry and what do we achieve in this particular art form and how do we work with words in order to make them really powerful and, and have them touch people's hearts and soul? Um, it's, she, has a, she has a talent for the use of language and words that's really quite rare. And I think, I think it might be partially due to the fact that she has been exposed to several different languages from a mm -hmm. child, right? And that kind of exposure gives you a kind of sensitivity to language to the to the meaning of words but also the sounds of words um, the rhythm of words um, so she's bringing all of that and then she's bringing she's bringing the culture that she grew up in her family the culture of her mother who is was Filipino and who was 
strong enough to uh, marry an African-American man, come to this country and create a family with him. That took an incredible amount of strength. And to raise children in the circumstances of a mixed marriage of that kind. So she had that culture, which was Catholic on her mother's side. <laughs> and then on her father's side, um, people who had come up from Mississippi and you know, settled here in Detroit, become, become um, uh, politically engaged as founders of the mosque here in Detroit, very early uh, believers of uh, Islam and practicers of, of Islam. So this family in which she grew up, a Catholic on one side, Islam on the other side, and learning how to navigate those two um, cultures and how to navigate Detroit as a young child of mixed background. It was difficult, it was hard. So she brings all of that into her poetry. There's a sensitivity, a political sensitivity there that's rare. And we're just very proud that um, through Willie Kozitsili, who uh, was a South African brother who died recently, he was the poet laureate of South Africa. Isn't that the, the, the name that you chose? Yes, I told you about the name <coughs> last See? time. Right? Good. Yeah. Good. So, right. <laughs> so, so through um, Willie, um, Aurora met Willie when he was teaching at UCLA some years ago, and he sort of brought her into the broadside track. Mm. And when Same she person. came back to Detroit, we talked. You know, yeah. she mentioned <coughs> that she had met my brother. Let's get involved, and from that from that point on, she became part of the broadside circle. Mm. Yeah. So, so that's that that's yep. Aurora Harris. Yeah. Wow. Poet. Well, yeah, I had, to, I had to leave Detroit to go all the way to California <laughs> to, to meet people that used to teach at Wayne State to, to come back. Come back. Yeah. See this connection that this South Africa right. to Willie. And then we need to meet this Willie. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, he just passed away. Yeah, he did. You can still learn about him. There are uh, lots of uh, pieces on YouTube about him, about okay. his work. Yeah, mm -hmm. about he was um, laid to rest, you know, in a what do you call it, formal uh, honorary, honorary funeral, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, because he was a poet laureate of South Africa. Wow. Well, Kari, I think it's safe to say that we are amongst royalty today. Oh, yeah, they get down. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah this, we, this is the real they, deal right here. I know, <laughs> I know. So, Aurora, let's get some reading. All right, uh, let's see. I was... I'm going to read about the first, one of the first incidents that happened to me and my mother and my sister. Um, one Saturday when my father took us out uh, for a movie downtown, we stopped behind the Hudson's building. And this was one of the incidents that really sealed into my mind that racism was really vicious mm. in Detroit. It's called, there's some, always something about spit. The way it can be so white, slick, foamy, 
as the chilled souls of white women so 1960s white washed upon the shores of shadow strolling in the shadow of detroit's hudson department store after the black doorman with white gloves opens the door for white folks those two old leopards in neat crisp edge starched satin and saturday afternoon dark pillbox hats with mesh veils caging their faces stopping right above wrinkled lips with white gloves clinging to sun shielded liver spots creeping up arms frames and freezes the name calling and rabid hot white foam flying in slow motion from blood orange plum painted mouths and stop stilled eternity of seconds i've never seen nor heard such a perfect memory of spit and insults to blackness mixed race children or filipino woman mamang being mistaken for being white in my life it haunts me fine tunes my nose through 47 years till I can smell racism and gone deadpan faces, body language or dead shine or glint of evil flashing inside blue brown pupils of white eyes. There's always something about spit. You'll never understand until you've been spat on. It curdles my insides, hides in a box labeled Aurora's first words and images of learning. Mm. Chinks, niggers, nigger lover, shame on you, white trash, zebras. Yeah, so it took me it took me quite a while to get this memory that was sealed in my head out on paper mm -hmm. um, because this happened in the 60s and with that and other instances of racism that our family experienced um, you know at the time miscegenation laws in the United States were still going on you know it was against the law for black people to marry outside of their race but it, it's it was directed to white women right? right but my mother well Filipino was a white-skinned woman mm -hmm. she and my father met here in Detroit she wasn't what they call you know uh, a war bride okay okay mm -hmm. so they met here in Detroit at a party hmm. um, and they got together. Okay, now you know that just me and Frida all the time, like family stories, uh, faith, uh, business, these are like, and that's why we play so well together in this. Right. Um, what led your, like, why, did your mom, did your, did your mom come from the Philippines to Detroit? Yes. What led her to Detroit? Yes, well, <coughs> my grandfather originally came to America, and he, uh, where where did he go? He came from the Philippines to work on the salmon fishery boats okay. in Alaska and Seattle. 
Oh, okay. And so during the first migration of Filipinos here, they used to take the ships, and that was one of the port of entries, and he Mm. worked there on the ships um, in the fisheries, uh, salmon fisheries, and then during the uh, seasonal growing years, they worked for Libby Corporation in the fields. In, uh, in in the Philippines, it, do you know, was he in Manila? Was he in a major city? Was he just in a town? Or do you know? My grandfather um, was in Manila and Luna, okay. La Union. Mm-hmm. And um, he and his brothers came here to America. Mm. And um, Did they ever talk about the journey, what they had to endure? Well, you know, they didn't talk about what they had to endure <laughs> on the boats or anything just coming here, you know, because they were just taking steamer ships, right? Right, right. And the Filipinos had a different type of um, relationship to the United States because they came in as nationals, right? Okay. They were, you know, Philippines was um, uh, controlled by Spain for 400 years. So, you know, a lot of Filipinos are very educated and stuff. And, and then when, you know, during the Filipino or the Spanish-American War, Mm -hmm. which became the Filipino-American Rebellion in 1865 through 1868, I believe. Um, You know, right after that, you know, my grandfather and them, they had already acquired land. They Mm. were landowners. So your stuff. so your grandfather was educated. He yeah, he was educated. Uh, yeah, he okay. he was part Filipino and part Spanish. Okay. Okay. And then my grandmother, my on to that side was um, Filipino. So when they came here, you know, my mother was in the Philippines um, when the war World War Two broke out, and she had been she was in Manila when they were dropping the bombs. Mm. And she and her relatives escaped, and my, her, my uncle, my grandmother at the time, they were able to escape, but um, my mother was, was uh, put in a prison camp, and um, they were executing people, and um, my mother w- was up for execution. Mm. But um, a Filipino priest who spoke Japanese um, knew my mom's family and um, was able to explain that she wasn't a spy because they were killing all of the Filipinos that had family here okay. as, as spies for the for the U.S. and they were able to convince them that she wasn't a spy and the rest mm. of the people and she was able to be l- released. Mm. So she attended, you know, Philip um, Japanese school for a minute while how, during how the occupation. How old was she when this is all happening? This was, she was like, you know, seven, 18, 19, 20. Cause oh, so when still she, young. Yeah, because mom was born in 20, and she came here in, I think, 43 or 44, 1944. Mm. Okay. So when, you know, I have pictures of her when she first came. She was very, very thin, you mm-hmm. know, real, really thin. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, my, my grandfather had since moved out of Alaska and stuff, and he came here to Detroit. He hmm. worked for Cunningham's. He was like a supervisor or a manager for Cunningham Drug Stores. I remember Cunningham's. And he had a lot of um, political ties to various um, senators and representatives here in Michigan to help Filipinos come and settle here. So he hmm. was he was instrumental in bringing um, some you know Filipinos here 
worked, and a lot of them at the time um, in the 40s and the 50s, they lived in Hamtramck. And so one of my great uncles lived in Hamtramck. So when my mother came, she stayed with him first um, because my grandfather was ha only had an apartment over on um, Bagley off of Trumbull, where across the street from uh, St. Peter's Church. Okay. Yeah, so he stayed in, in one of those row apartments over there. Uh, he was um, a teacher of Spanish at Fort Wayne for wow. a while. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so in the meantime, you know, somewhere, my mother eventually, she was staying at the YMCA or the YWCA that was behind Central United Methodist Church before, mm -hmm. you know, before mm -hmm. it got torn down and stuff. And then she moved with my uncle and then um, eventually with my grandfather and then they were out. And then my mother, you know, she, she um, attended Madonna College. She was the first foreign uh, student to graduate from Madonna with a degree in nutrition. Hmm. So with her being in that class and with other women who, who had come out of war situations at that time, um, they were really interested in um, immigration rights and, and learning how to go back to those war-torn countries and develop the people by giving them nutritious food choices and teaching them how to eat and this type of thing like that. And um, they had um, a lot, they used to have a lot of different international parties uh, at the international um, place over on Ferry. The International Institute. Yeah, that the, uh, oh, the International yes. Institute. Institute. Yeah, yes. so I have I have pictures of my mom in there with other her classmates oh and goodness. stuff. So it was people. around back in the yeah, day. I, yeah. I don't know when it was. Uh, yeah. When it broke ground. Yeah. So yeah, back so it then was at it least was in the four. We know from the forties up. Yeah. So it was in effect. Yeah. So you know okay. there were different types of parties like that going on, and you know that's where she kind of met my dad. And, you know, later on when I was a kid, I asked him, you know, why did you get married? You know, because he was Muslim and she was Catholic. And she said, I married him because he was my intellectual equal. Oh, mm. wow. Interesting. And, so she, and she told me, she said, never, don't marry anybody who's not your intellectual equal. That's, uh, wow. that's so probably uh, good advice. It is right. good advice. And then, you know, <laughs> and then she advice. said, and she said, you know, when I met him, he had his own business, which he did. He had his own trucking company back then. Hmm. Um and he was pretty independent and you know coming out of a war situation and um having the nationalism of of being filipino and having to fight against you know the japanese and then have to fight for independence from the united states and all this other stuff um you know uh and then we have a, her one of her cousins was um, one of the first four-star generals in the philippines hmm. um who let who formed a guerrilla troop um, called the um, the Free Panay Force for the island of Panay, and he was he was considered a war hero. So you know she's coming out of that type of a background, mm -hmm. you know. And then my dad is coming out of you know his family coming out of Tunica, Mississippi. Tunica, um, yes. Minis where Mississippi. is that? Tunica, okay. Mississippi. That sounds like. <laughs> If it ever was a country town. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. How big is that city? It's 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 not it's not really big, but it's the home of a lot of uh Native American casinos now. Oh, oh is it okay. right? Yes, okay. it's a casino capital right now. But um wow. they escaped uh 
being lynched and killed in, in Tunica, Mississippi. So mm. my great-grandfather, my grandmother, grand, great-grandmother, and my father when he was a little boy and his sisters and brothers and them they came they came up on trains my grandfather great great grandfather put them on trains and brought them here that's really interesting um i've been thinking about how we we have traveled from the south to the north and you know uh, i've been thinking about that in the context of my father as i'm working on on a book on him did you have you, did you hear any stories about that? I know I keep coming back to the same question. I think I'm probing to get somewhere. Uh, their experience traveling by train from south to north. Uh, the only thing that my, my father told me that he remembered was that um, when, they, when they put them on the train, my great-grandfather gave my, my grandmother, my great-grandmother a knife it was a big hunting knife because he was part Indian mm -hmm. and he used to kill bears with his hands. That's what my dad said. His arms were all scarred up with, you know, from fighting bears. So, so <laughs> when it got on the train, he remembered him wrapping the, tr the knife in a, like a blanket and putting it on her lap. Wow. And then the next thing they knew, um, grandfather, cause it can't great grandfather, I guess he, he didn't come right away, but, um, grandfather and grandma and great-grandma when they got to Ecorse um, my grandfather built four or five houses for the family um, and for and family members and stuff so that's all I remember about okay. that and there's other stuff that led to it mm -hmm. le them leaving from from Mississippi you know like um, they weren't they had land uh, and daddy said that he was in the house with his cousin, they were little, and they heard people they screaming and yelling and horses coming. And so they were, the white men were running around the house and they were trying to, you know, breaking in to, to come in and kill my grandmother and, and the women in the house while the men were out in the field. And this is on their own land. So this is one, you know, this is kind of like, you know, why they left, why were they being harassed was because they were landowners mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at the time. And um, Daddy said his cousin picked him up and pulled him through the back window of the house. And they ran barefoot through the fields to get grandpa and great grandpa and um, the rest of the men out of the field. And they jumped and ran and got on horses and came back to the house and then you know things happened and things happened things happened <laughs> we'll just leave it at that we'll leave it at that <laughs> things happened and next thing you know they were all packing up and moving here wow but um yeah and then you know daddy has told me stories about you know sun, sundown towns mm -hmm. you know before we got the word sundown town he used to, he told me that um they they farmed a little bit and grew vegetables and e-course and Grandpa had a horse-driven carriage, um, and he would fill it up with vegetables and stuff, and Daddy would be on the back of the, the um, carriage holding the, the, the blankets and stuff over the fruit so they wouldn't bounce out the, out the back of the, the, the um, carriage and stuff. And then um, he said that when they, they used to go down Michigan Avenue, and right before sundown, the police would come up and tell them, you know, you better get across the line. 
before the sun sets. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they'd say, yes, sir, and daddy'd be holding down the, you know, mm -hmm. little boy trying to hold down the, ve the rest of the vegetables and stuff, and they'd make it down, down Michigan Avenue, and I guess go up Schaefer, and she was telling me Michigan Avenue and Fort Street, they were both, you know, notorious for police then running black people mm -hmm. back into that section of town. Because, um, you know, we have a, we have E-Course, and then we have River Rouge, and then we have Southwest Detroit. That's the black African-American Southwest Detroit um, historical. Not a lot of people don't know that, and they associate his Southwest Detroit with, um, you know, the Mexican area and the population of Latino and Spanish-speaking people here in Detroit, but there is another section that is historically African-American. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term sundown town uh, and what that is, is, and I think Aurora probably gives, gives you an indication or a window of that, but that is those cities and those townships where uh, black people could come and work to serve as maids or in other capacities, but uh, they weren't allowed to live in those communities uh, in any way, and so the, the, the markers on many of those towns throughout this country, not specifically in Michigan, but really there's sundown towns in virtually every state in some way, yeah. um, said things, don't let the sun set on you in mm -hmm. this town, and your life was literally in danger, so when the sun set, you better be out of that city yeah. if you are a person of color. I, I think it's still actually a lot of sundown towns it's still on yeah. the books, especially yeah, like oh, for sure. Oregon, yeah. Washington, yeah. Uh, certain places, uh, I would say even here in Michigan. Well, and then it's unwritten yes. rules as well, yes. right. as we know, right. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> that right. do exist. Right, right. You know. Um, I would like to get back to your story, though, as a little girl and your poem. And I don't know if this connects you to another poem you were going to read, if you're kind of doing a narration forward with that. But you're, I'm, I'm trying to imagine your, you, how you felt, because it took you some time, clearly, to, to process from a, li young, a little girl to 47. Is that Yeah, the well, you know, the thing was is that, you know, um, when, you, when, you, when, you have, when, when you experience that kind of trauma when you're, when you're a kid, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's like a, a vivid movie in your head. It never goes away. Um, and it wasn't that I couldn't process it, because I have processed it. Mm -hmm. um, every time I went down to Hudson's, mm -hmm. <laughs> every time I saw downtown, I was processing it. But, um, you know, there was that incident, and um, there was the incident when my parents had a restaurant. Um, it was on Plum Street in Elizabeth, and mm. the where the restaurant was is where the MGM Casino garden space is and the parking lot is right over where the, the restaurant used to be when it was all hippies in that area in 1967 and 68. Um, but let me back up. So we had that incident in Hudson's and then my sister and I used to fight our way out of school in elementary school against gangs. Hmm. Um, and I was getting, that was getting kind of old for me. You know, I was I don't know, in fourth or fifth grade, and it got, I, I just didn't want to live here anymore. Hmm. You so know when I, you say, when you say gangs, at that time being, because um, the whole concept of like gangs, generally when it's presented, it's presented in the narrative of today's culture, 
So the gangs at the time, what what was the the makeup of them? Well, there um, were different there were different kids. There were you know mostly um, African American kids and some white kids, mm-hmm. but you know we looked Asian. You know mm-hmm. we had I had two long braids. My sister's eyes are a little bit more slanted than mine. You know, mm-hmm. and she's six years older than me, so it was older kids. You know that went were in her closer in her grades. And you know, me being six years younger than her, you know, I, as a little girl, I had to help her fight. Yeah. You know, and I wrote a story about that. You know, it's in my it's in my new book um, manuscript that's coming out. It's called "They All Fall Backwards." So it wasn't like you know drive-by shootings or nothing. It was like you know catch you in the back of the playground yeah. and say you know we were subjected to racial racial slurs. You know, go home, chink. Mm-hmm. You know, you Chinese people, and we kept screaming, we're not Chinese, we're Filipino. Yeah. And I laugh about it now because I recently went to um, a, a, a school reunion, elementary school reunion, and most of the guys that I that remember I me, the up. first thing they said was, you remember Rory? She always used to say, I'm not Chinese, I'm Filipino. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, yeah, it was, you know, it was just, you know, just So when fights. you see the, the roots of like even in young people and, and they're conditioned in this world, like you see the roots of the misunderstanding that builds uh, bigotry right, right. and because, you know, prejudice yeah. and racism. Like it's starting from the root of like, it's something I don't understand. Right. Uh, and in this misunderstanding, it's different. So now right. all of a sudden I have a problem with it. Right. So the thing too was that, you know, Vietnam was going on at the same time. There was a lot mm-hmm. of ha- hatred against Asians and, yeah. and you know, that, and, and they the still, propaganda right, machine. They, and they still mm-hmm. do it today. You know, there's no distinction between Asians. It's like we're all Asian. Yeah. You yeah, know, there's yeah. no, there's no distinction by country, culture, ethnicity or whatever, you know. So back then, you know, if you look different or looked Asian, that's what you, you became the enemy. You were the yellow enemy, you know, back then. <laughs> And um, it was really hard, and you know, I wrote about it, um, and that's a, you know another like traumatic situation where, you know, the the stuff sticks it's still, with you. Yeah, it's so, it's there with you the rest of your life. Yeah. As I would definitely say, a lot of whatever it is that we went through in our formative years impacts right. so much of how we see the rest of right, the world. Right. As uh, I actually sat and did a podcast with my sister. And this is like my sister, so it's like you know she's doors away. But like she was bullied, being bullied so much by all of these boys that I didn't really, you know, you're a kid, like you don't. And it's like, man, I didn't really even know. But that built right. up a lot of her perspective towards yeah. a lot of things right. mm-hmm. to yeah. this day. And I would definitely say when it comes to boys with girls, it's such weird. It's like, it's like you push the girl down just because you like her. You know, I mean, this is just. I don't even know where that form of conditioning comes from. Right. <laughs> you know, I was but, like, I don't know <laughs> when you said that was okay. But that, yeah, yeah, it's like it's like you in the sandbox. It's like, oh, she a girl. I like her. Push her. Right, right. <laughs> you know so yeah, so you know, it's like you know those that type of incident. You know, the incident where my father almost got killed. Hmm. You know, I come home and I just said I want to live here. You know, I, I just don't want to live here. But and then we were able to get passports and go leave the country in 1967 before the rebellion Hmm. and for me and my sister and my brother he was he was little he's three years younger than me uh, to leave the country and here i was like eight seven or eight years old and i was able to see 
through my mom's relatives um, who were part of the government, who were lawyers, who my, my mom's cousin was the uh, superintendent of schools in Metro Manila. Hmm. So she would take me to her office yeah, government so you office. You were not she, staying like in the uh, in the Cabrini Green right. projects of Manila. Well, you know, we, it was kind <laughs> not of we, good we, times. we still we still call it barangays, you know, <laughs> barrio, whatever. But it was the it, Jefferson. It was it was kind of middle middle, you know, kind of middle class to you know. It was a, we mm -hmm. had houses and stuff, but mm -hmm. um, she took me to all the schools. She took me to public schools and she would say, see, the, here's some kids that look like you. They're brown. Mm. They're smart. Um, mm. Those people in the, in, in, in the states are ignorant. This is what happens. But, you know, and then she'd take me to the Catholic schools and he see, here's some more kids. They're, they're smart. They go to the Catholic schools. They're really smart. They're brown. They, they look like you. You look like them. Then she'd take me to the vocational schools where they had um, you know, uh, older kids learning trades. Mm -hmm. Then she took me to the universities. So everywhere I went, I was like, okay, I can see this. And then, and then we went. I mean, my mother's um, cousin was married to President Marcos's cousin, so we got to go to the palace. And when when I when I got to see, okay, brown people are running the country. And here I was, you know, seven or eight years old. And I'm looking back and thinking, you know, <laughs> my whole, sh I had a very big consciousness shift at the, that age, I politically, with my identity, and, and then it became like, there was nothing that anybody on the planet could ever say to me again, because I had seen brown people that look like me in positions, in of, positions of power and yeah. influence. So, so at this age, um, because you're you're young, were you? How aware were you of like a lot of the changing uh, trends of what was happening in America and also oh, internationally? I was very aware because my parents, you know, we we read a lot of different international newspapers came to the house. Hmm. You know, like I remember, we we my grandfather would get state reports huh. um, at the time. We got news relatives would send us newspapers from the Philippines. They would be in English or Tagalog. Or so Ilocano. it sounds like if your granddad were able to see the internet, he'd have just right. He would well, have been flipped. on and popping. <laughs> <laughs> but we back then we had you know uh, the the small you know the envelopes the inner uh, with it airmail envelopes mm -hmm. the letters that you could buy from the post yeah. office and they were like thin little like rice paper yep, type I stuff and you'd have to write on them and then fold them up and seal them and stuff like that and the relatives would send you know packages and boxes of magazines and things um hmm. and you know i we read in my house so I so you were bilingual yeah i i, I grew up um speaking Castilian, Spanish, Tagalog, and Ilocano in English. Are mm. you still fluent in? No, no, I'm not. So that's another point of trauma that, okay. I, that I experienced when I was a child because we, I had no problem speaking in all of those languages at any given time in our household because they switched off and on. You know, my mom, between my mom and my grandfather, the Filipino community and relatives that come to the house, 
we could be speaking English like this and then turn and talk and, and start speaking Spanish and turn talking talking wow. Tagalog or talking Ilocano and then somebody else would come in and they stop talking and go back to Tagalog, you know. So I was used to listening to all those different rhythms and languages and mm -hmm. things. And when I was little, I had a Filipino, I, I had a Filipino accent and a Gadilian lisp. <laughs> <laughs> So they immediately. Well, I know, I know kids were, they were already yeah. Uh, they, yeah, they ragging were, on you. Kids right. talk about kids for anything. Right, like, so, you, you know. Talk different? Right, well, you, you're not from here, you talk different, you don't sound like so, us, you don't look like us, and all this other stuff. Is that why the gangs messed with you? Yeah, that was part of it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was that, um, you know, my sister, like I said, you know, her hair was straighter than mine, her eyes were slanted, and. Um, she just she looked more Asian than I did, but we had long hair, and f as far as everybody was concerned, we were Chinese, so or chinks or gooks or whatever they called us. And there was a point where I went to school, and the teacher said told told sent a note home with me saying I had to go to speech class. Mm. So that was another point. I still remember the room at Doty School. I still remember how dark it was. I still remember the flashcards. And I wrote a poem about that too, about the process of losing my accent um, and where to place my tongue so I could get rid of the glottal stops that are needed in Tagalog or Philip, you know, or um, Ilocano. So, mm -hmm. and, and within less than a year and a half, I couldn't speak to anybody. So I had already traveled to the Philippines. I was already able to speak. And then after all this English-only stuff, within you know, with, with within two years I was like not unable to communicate mm. so that was a point of trauma for me it wasn't a point of trauma for my sister because she was six years older she retained everything but mm. to become an outsider in your own house where you used to be able to speak you know and you used to be able to do and now you you're like struggling so a lot of the words are like you know shadows in my head and later um, when I got older, I, I would start dreaming the words. So when I would dream the words, I would ask, or I, I'd be shopping. I tell, give this example all the time. Uh, my girlfriend, Ella Singer, you remember mm -hmm. Ella? Yeah. I do. We used to go shopping all the time. And one day we were shopping in Hamtramck. We were going, trying to get ready, ready for a slam uh, competition in where we're Rhode Island or something. And um, we were going through the shop, and I was looking for a particular type of bag that that you travel with, right? It's big enough where you can put like, you know, two two days worth of clothes in it. You could put some food in it, you know, it's like a train <laughs> bag or a bus bag or something. But I couldn't figure out what it was that I was to say it, right? So I'm going through the the aisles, and then I see it, and I go suput. <laughs> And she goes, what? I said, I found it. I found the suput. Wow. And she says, what is that? And I said, this is what we call the, the travel bag in the Philippines, the suput. <laughs> so it was like that. So I write it down. And then I dream words um, in Spanish, or I dream word, other words, you know, like um, good morning, magandang gabi, magandang hapon, um, magandang Umagam, you know, good morning, good afternoon, good night. Um, I started remembering words for water, like too big, like um, how how much is this makano um, ito, or how to say my name. Um, 
have to remember now. Ang panalang mo Aurora, ang panalang ko Frida, you know, something like that, you know. So it would start coming back. And the reason why I can, can speak it a little bit more now, and I still don't sound as Filipino as I should, is because I go to the Filipino school. I was going to the Filipino school. So the other half of my life is that, you know, not only am I um, heavily involved in African-American community, but I'm also involved in Filipino community. And I'm the president of the Filipino American National Historical Association for the Michigan chapter. Hmm. And do you think uh, all of this within language and words, is this what drew you into your love of poetry and reading? And Well, when, when, when we went to the Philippines, one of the stops that we did was in Japan. And we stayed at the Tokyo Hilton. And this is how I got involved in poetry. My mother used to play piano, and she wrote, she wrote poetry. She read, read poetry and wrote poetry. But we here we are in, in Tokyo Hilton. We go out shopping. And this is that trip in '67. Yes, or this in is 60, trip? in '67. So this that '67 trip was was a trip. Yes, it was. It was the trip of life. People say, "Hey, what what month changed your life?" Right. Yeah. Like, yep. right. This is it. This is it. You know, July, June, July of '67. Point to the day and hour. Yeah. yeah. And so, so we were in the we we gone out shopping and we were on the Ginza and we were going to different shops and she was buying my sister and I like uh, souvenirs, dolls and things but there was books and she um, was reading this book and she spoke Japanese, my mother spoke Philip, English, Philip, English, Tagalog, Ilocano, Spanish, Japanese and Polish. Mm. Wow. And okay. Polish. Yeah, because of the Filipino community in Hamtramck. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so. Okay. It's like sometimes she may yeah. need to buy groceries when it's right. like. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, right. So um, she uh, had this, was looking at this book of haikus and stuff, and she explained to me these are like little poems you can write. So she, she was teaching me how to write haiku. And the first haiku that I wrote <laughs> is in this book. Um, but it and that's how I how I started writing poetry. So and I'm this gonna, is back when you were about like eight years old. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna read this. It's, uh, it, these are three haikus that I put together, and I found the actual paper, not the one that I wrote on, but the pad of paper from that said Tokyo Hilton on it. Mm. Oh, okay. from the hotel. You know, they have those pads yeah. of paper. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I did find one of those in the house when my mom passed away. Wow. So uh, this is Tokyo, 1967. Gray eyes cried cool rains upon the Tokyo Hilton and Ginza's bright face. Two silkworms named yen and dollar spun soft red silk kimonos for us. Not surprised by white women with three dark children, no one stares at us. Mm. Mm. So that's almost like the opposite Yes. To a lot of the poem you just read. So yes. like in Tokyo, you were embraced. Yeah, kind of. You know, it's like nobody, like here, you know, if we got on mm -hmm. the bus, people were pointing at us because she had white skin. They talked mm -hmm. about her, you know, and stuff like that. And to counteract that type of mess that was happening on buses and when we were shopping, she would speak to us in Tagalog or Ilocano. And then they go, oh, she's not from here. Mm. And then she, cause my mom, because she was so funny, she be cussing people in Filipino <laughs> language. 
sandwich on the bus. And they'd be like, oh, she's not from here. You know, and then, you know, uh, the, when you talk about the consciousness of things, because I knew what was happening to black people in this country, right? Um, because it was in the news. <laughs> we used to watch it on TV, you know, the civil rights movement on black and white TV when we were kids. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, being part of the Nation of Islam showed us, you know, how, how community worked. You know, we made okay, our now, own food. Now, wait, wait. We had our you own were stores. More, you were more than a part of it, being that temple number one, and your family had, like, studying with the the, right. the founder yes. of the Nation of yes. Islam, so when, Fahd so, Muhammad's teachings, which inspired Elijah Muhammad. Right, right. Uh, so when Daddy moved up here, when they came up on the trains, it was 1928, and he said, and my grandparents, my grandmother and grandma told me that um, they were out shopping, grocery shopping, and um, they heard this man saying that there's a new religion for black people. Come, come join the new religion for black people. Mm -hmm. And they went over to listen to this man. And they said that, you know, after their experiences in Tunica, Mississippi, with the Klan and people getting lynched around them and all this other stuff, and they were, they were Christian at the time, they were Baptists, um, but the church wasn't doing anything or had no power to stop people, the lynchings or whatever. Mm -hmm. They decided to change, try this new religion for black people. So um, at the time, um, they were, ha Master Fart was having meetings in people's houses okay so this concept of like because i've i've been in reading the autobiography of malcolm x for like the fourth time now <laughs> and it's just like different snapshots where i just take this thing but a pakistani guy is going around because that he, he talks about this in the book too mm -hmm. but a pakistani guy is going from basically doing house meetings mm -hmm. and uh, 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 black people that have come from the South to Detroit telling them about how the black man is, is the true God mm -hmm. for the people and I know the way. Mm -hmm. That, to me, just blows my mind well, of like you know what i'm saying like, <laughs> you know because like to mind. me you know what i'm saying like i i don't think for for you know right it blew everyone's mind you know so they were like okay well let's listen to this okay you know and and um then so they when they changed over they weren't the nation yet because they converted in 28 daddy was eight years old so they hadn't become the nation yet Mm -hmm. They were um, like the Lost Tribes of Shabazz. Yeah, the or Lost something. Tribes of Shabazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I put that in one of my poems too. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they and so Daddy was telling me when they opened the one of the first mosque that he went to, it was down on Hastings Street, and the mosque is down the street from where that 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 art space is. What's the name of the art space? Virgil Carr? Nuh-uh. It's on near Milwaukee. Near Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Ah, man. That big, that big warehouse. Tangent Gallery. Oh, oh okay. okay. Yeah, okay. so Hastings runs right into that. Tangent yeah, Gallery. When you get down to the corner, you turn right two streets down before you get to 94. Talk about all the, uh, 
talk about the the historical plaques that will never be given right for so, historical things right so so right on the corner right before you get to 90 94 freeway mm-hmm. is where the mosque was because that mm-hmm. was part of black bottom mm-hmm. and daddy told me he remembered you know going upstairs and, and uh, master fire be having classes and things wow and um he believed daddy believed he was psychic because he said he always had two two men with him and while he was taking his lessons with the rest of the kids and the moms and stuff would be in the back master Ferg would take a ask for a glass of water and he would look into the water and then he'll say okay children lesson is over um, I have to leave now wow. he said when they come just tell them you're just studying and then he would leave and go down the back go down the back stairs and leave out the building okay then a few minutes later the police would come running up mm. is that right yes now so he told me you know and they would just sit there saying we're just studying religious work you know mm-hmm. whatever and then they'd be looking for him and then um later on daddy said that they were issued cards they had muslim cards that uh, that had their names on them that said i am a muslim this is my name it had like an identification my address or whatever um, and some like I saw, maybe it said go in peace or we come in peace or something I saw it once daddy showed it to me I don't know where it is now but um, I did see that card now, now let me ask this question because it's a lot into this and the, the, the people I know in the nation um, it's like I, I assume their interpretation is through Farrakhan's interpretation through Elijah Muhammad's interpretation but your family was like right alongside Elijah Muhammad, like, hey man, you know, like we're right. all eating together. So, so for Muhammad, what was the story? Because the whole concept of him saying like one day he just disappeared. Well, no one really knows what happened to him. I don't, you know, my father and them don't know what happened to him. They just said- No theory? No, they just said that he left. Um, and it was probably due to all the harassment that was coming down because they were starting to get organized here mm-hmm. um and then by the time and then i know elijah muhammad needed to leave right because there were many threats on his life right so it was many threats on many people's lives but your family stayed right mm. and that's that's the that's the <laughs> i don't know the blessings of the universe I, I imagine because they did stay and when the nation started up they went from the mosque on Hastings street to the mosque on Linwood. My grandmother's okay. picture, she's part of the picture in the elders in the mosque on Linwood. Mm. And she used to live next door in the apartment to that mosque. And I remember- um, You mean with the storefront on the bottom? Mm-hmm, yep. Mm. And I remember, so when we were in the Philippines, when the rebellion broke out, it was really weird because um, we had just gotten, there were rumors that President Marcos was gonna put the country under martial law. And then we received a telegram from my father and grandfather saying you have to leave the country because Marcos might, you know, there's trouble, leave the country now. But they said, but there's trouble here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. So you have mm-hmm. to be careful, they're having a riot. It's like you leave so, one form of martial right, law right, to the next right, form of martial right. law. So, you know, I remember, you know, we were packing up and stuff and I remember seeing the rebellion here via satellite on television over there. They mm. were showing it. And this was like 
the greatest thing in, in telecommunications and TV history that you could see this type of stuff in other countries. And this, you know, the, 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 the invention of television and that long distance type television broadcast was, I think, um, what was a major uh, catalyst in getting people from around the world to actually see what was going on here with the civil rights movement, see what was going on here in Detroit and things like that. And when we were driving, leaving the, the Philippine army and the police, they were out in the streets and they were stopping people because people started, you know, trying to rebel too because it was, mm -hmm. they didn't know when it was going to happen, right? The, the um, martial law. And I remember the being stopped and they had guns. And then we make it to the airport and we land and at the airport and I clearly remember driving from Metro Airport and it was very warm and it was it was raining. There was like a, a fine mist of rain, it was about two two or three o'clock in the morning, and the back of the cab was steaming up. And I said, Mommy, can I roll the window down? It's too hot. And she said, Yeah. So I rolled the window down and I remember I wiped the steam off the window, rolled the window down, and then I said, I smell smoke, Mom. And the cab driver said they had a riot, the whole city's on fire. So by the time we pulled up off of 94 and came up on Hamilton, because you know, we've been over here since 1962, the AMP across the street on Hamilton was still smoking. Mm -hmm. The bank, which was, uh, I think National Bank of America's MB, MB, MBD, D National Bank of Detroit, something. Yeah. yeah, that was like had windows broken out in it and stuff. And um, then there was still a lot of people running. There was still shooting. There were you know looting. There were police everywhere. And then we came to the house, and Daddy and Grandpa met us at the at the door with shotguns. Wow. Then Saturday we had to go check on my aunt on my dad's side. My aunt and my cousins lived on Lawrence and 12th Street. So we when, we when we went over there to check on them because we had like 16 cousins over there. And we went over there and, and checked on Auntie Olivia. And then they said, okay, we gotta go check on grandma. So <laughs> we drove around Central and that's when I saw the tanks, all the tanks and all the- That were kept on yeah, Central's parking lot. on Central's uh, parking, parking lot. lot. And yeah. with the rocket launchers and all this other stuff. And I kept telling my father, I was like, why did we have to come back here? Why didn't we just stay in the Philippines? It was warmer. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because that's how I was thinking. It was like- the Thought process. Right, you yeah. know, they're having army over here, the same thing is happening in the Philippines. What's the difference? It's warmer over there. Right. <laughs> Let's at least be comfortable. <laughs> as no comfortable snow. as we can. You know, be, right? even, no though, even, well, uh, even though it's, it's the, end, even though it's the <laughs> end of the summer, <laughs> you know. Uh -huh. But um, that was my introduction into, you know, the um, results of oppression and the beginnings of repression. Wow. So. It's so many, like, uh, man. It's so many because we're, we're already in overtime, but right. there's so much more to talk about. We're so we're going to have to wrap soon. But I want you to read something else. And I know Frida has a question. I know I have a question. You got to come back. Okay, well, yeah. which one? Yeah, which one do you want me Let's to? read first. Yeah, let's read okay, first. Okay, what do you want to hear first? Because these are like. Whatever's on your heart. These are like stories. I have one about the fighting that okay. we did. And then my sister and I, and then I have the one about my father. Okay, I'll, I'll read that because we were talking about Islam. Okay. okay. This is called Black Man Dying. 
Summer of 1968, after the Tigers won the World Series. It was a Saturday night when the phone in the hallway rang. My mom screamed, your father is in the hospital, we have to go. She told my sister to stay with our brother. Mom called a cab and we went to Detroit Receiving Hospital. While in the cab, I asked mom what happened. She said, someone stabbed your father and she took out her rosary beads and began praying. I remember feeling scared and thinking, please Allah, save my daddy, as the cab drove quickly to the hospital. I remember mom asking where dad was, where we were told to go downstairs. I remember walking with mom down a hall that smelled like medicine, and mom asking nurses where, where he was. I'm trying to find my husband, please help me, she said. The nurse took us to him. Dad was on a gurney in a hallway, bleeding to death. When I saw him, the sheets were soaked in deep red blood. There was a pool of blood on the floor. Mom looked at Dad and said, Sus Mario Sep. That's like Jesus and Mary and Joseph all run together in Filipino. Oh my God, we're here. I will get help. Stay here, she said. Then Mom took off running down the hall, screaming in Tagalog and Ilkano for help. Dulunga mo ako, Dulunga mo ako, help me, help me. Dulung, Dulung, help me, help, help. Dad's eyes were open, but he couldn't speak. All he could do was blink slowly. The sheet that covered his torso was soaked in blood. His forearms and hands were sliced, and there wasn't an IV connected to him. I put my hand on his bleeding right hand and said, Daddy, this is Aurora. I'm not going to let you die like Brother Malcolm. After a few minutes, when I looked down, my white gym shoes and socks were soaked in my father's blood. I had never seen so much blood in my life. A few minutes later, mom and Filipino nurses came running towards us and they quickly rolled him down the hall and moved my father to an emergency room. Doctors removed a broken blade of a butcher knife that was stuck in his lung. Oh my God. Later on, mom took me to a restroom and rinsed much of daddy's sticky blood from my hands, shoes, and socks and feet as she could. She stuffed my shoes with toilet paper to soak up the water, wrapped my socks up and put them in her bag. A couple of days later, after the surgery to remove the broken blade from Dad's lung, when Dad was better and able to talk a little bit, he told us he had been attacked by a white man that had tried to rob him when he was locking up our restaurant, the Plush Puppy, located on Plum Street in the Hippie area near Plum and Fifth Street in Detroit. Dad said the man demanded money, but when he said he didn't have any on him, the man pulled a butcher knife and repeatedly screamed, I'm going to kill you, nigger. Dad fought back, but the man slashed at his hands and his arms, then finally stabbed him so hard in his chest the butcher knife blade broke from its handle. Dad said he drove himself to the emergency room while leaning on the steering wheel to apply pressure to his chest while trying to steer until he reached the hospital and forced himself to walk in. When I asked why they didn't put him in a hospital room, he said, because I'm black and Muslim. Someone had come to get his information and ask him questions and never came back. If it weren't for my mom and the Filipino nurses that helped, my father would have bled to death. I truly believe God, whose names are known as Allah and Yahweh and Jesus, answered our prayers, and with mom and the Filipino nurses, a miracle had taken place. That is, that is like probably got to be one of the most. Wow. That's a lot to take in as a kid, because that was like during around the same time. Yep. That's a lot to take in. Yeah, so that's, that's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, like, 
blah, these different traumatic things were happening. So, you know, it's like I had them all in my head and, you know, with this new book that I'm manuscript that I'm trying to, you know, put out uh, in maybe by summer, I guess, is dealing with uh, pieces of my life and the anger and the rage that led to mm. me being an activist. Got it. Yeah. Right. So, so that's new book. Yeah. So this is it's called um, from a Detroit war primer. Mm. Okay. War primer. That war is a primer. That's a great. That is a great. That's a great title. Yeah. War so primer. I took it from. You know, I was inspired by Bertolt Brecht, the German um, playwright. Playwright who, who who wrote who made a book of poems it's like uh, poetry and photography called from a German war primer. Mm. Mm. That is. A that's, 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 I cannot wait for it to come. Out. So yeah, so yeah, it's we're gonna, gonna definitely get you in before the end. Yeah, it's yeah. gonna have um, poetry in it. Uh, poetry that that really shows resistance, things that led up to me being, you know, who I am today, and then there's journal entries in the back. That's because mm-hmm. the whole book started when we, the people of Detroit, the group that I helped co-found that helped produce that water book that Dr. House was talking about. Okay. Um, when we were uh, had had a, were in action against the takeover of the schools by the mayor in 2010. So originally the book started with journal entries and poetry that came out while I was in either in protest or getting ready to go in and make statements um, to the city council on the closure of the schools. Now, now I just have this question, um, along with, like, you know, how do people get in contact with you and find out more about the book and what else you're doing? But because I've always had this, like, like I even said to Mama and Ned, it's like you now in having this conversation, it's like I understand more of the, the context because, like, you interpret sometimes and see things of the pain in others and can yes. connect and and it I know it's like a, a mix of anger and it's a mix of sadness but it's like how in dealing with the trauma that you've seen a lot dealing with the misunderstandings of race that causes the oppression that causes the violence like how how do you cope how do you how do you deal how do you how do you keep going for the next day um, specifically, I'm speaking about when you came back from um, you came back from uh, the the like the town from St. Louis. What is that? Uh, Ferguson. When you came back from Ferguson, and you were like, "Wow, this is just heavy," and it's like, "Wow, it is heavy." You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. how do you keep going well, with the enthusiasm to to stay connected? Thing, well, I when think it is I think so the thing of it is that there's a lot of I see I have a lot of compassion, and there's I have a lot of faith. And I have a lot of hope. And um, I've been doing, like when I first started community work, it started in a Black Panther house and I was teaching children how to read Mm -hmm. because I learned how to read before I went to elementary school. The other thing was that, you know, that's so education where I was teaching children my age how to read when I was in elementary. Then the next thing was the community work. You know, we have farms. My dad had organic farms, and we used to sell stuff on the Eastern Market. We had our own restaurant, you know, and any food that we had, we would give it away to people and things like that. So I have actually been doing this nonstop every day of my life almost in some capacity of helping community, 
um, and inspiring people and trying to have people plant seeds of hope so they can survive for 50 years. And does that take a toll on like the, you know, as they say, like people that help most sometimes yeah, never yeah. even allow a space to be helped themselves. Yes, yes. Well, I've been in that space too. Um, and I've had to, as I've gotten older, I've had to pull back a little bit. So I started pulling back maybe about five years ago when my great nephew has autism. Um, I was, you know, a, a special education advocate for the district of, D of Detroit Public Schools in Wayne County. So I also was helping with children and parents who, were, who have disabilities and things. And, it, and my phone literally rang from like, or text, people started texting me three o'clock in the morning until midnight. And then at some point, because I, I was working on so many different things from disability rights, closure of the schools, people getting foreclosed on, children coming up missing, people getting homeless, um, trying to find people to live, places to live, people didn't have clothes for their kids to start school, all kinds of stuff. And then I just said, okay, I'm gonna start taking calls at nine, and by five o'clock, I'm done. I'm hanging up the phone. Because there was, there literally for, I don't know, 10 years or more, you know, I wasn't able to sleep. You know, I, I sleep with the TV on during the whole time of the takeover of the city, and I will wake up to the news. If they said school, I will wake up. If they said downtown, I will wake up. Mm. If they said foreclosure, I will wake up. And then people would start, I'd text people and I'd say, okay, watch the news. Because the cert, you know, and, that's, and then this is how to manage, you know, the information that was coming out during the blackout of news in Detroit. So the best, you know, I would have to wake up so I could catch the early reports because when the reports came in at two or three o'clock in the morning, by six o'clock, they're changed. By seven o'clock, it's changed some more. By nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, by the time you get to 12 o'clock news or 11 o'clock news in the daytime and afternoon, you've got maybe 30 seconds of the original report. And I'm a researcher too, so I stay on online researching. What I started doing was I remind myself to eat healthier. I take breaks. I meditate a lot. I do yoga. I was doing, you know, I didn't have a car for a long time, so another way to keep me healthy was I was walking everywhere. Mm -hmm. A couple years ago, I bought a bike, so I start biking places. But it's those types of things, and I write. I started journaling again. That the piece that I wrote, wrote read a few minutes ago about my father. Um, was part of a, a, you know, like starting to journal entry again, because that's how I actually started writing. What, after the poetry and, and as a kid, when I was in junior, junior high school, the high school I kept journals. So that's the way I can process stuff. If I write it, then I can see, I can analyze what I'm writing and see how I'm making sense of my own daily oppressions and dehumanizations. And once I can understand that, because you know what I'm saying, it's like if you're not taking action for yourself, you can't go out and take action for other people. Well, it's if tougher you're trying, to, it's yeah. Tougher. And if you're trying to, you know, the healer, if something, and I used to say this, if the healer gets sick, who's gonna heal the healer? Right. right? That's right. Right. So, okay. you know, different things like that. Um, I listen to a lot of jazz. You know, that's what I call my thinking music. <laughs> okay, well, jazz has that's a deeper discussion. Yeah, so it has we, a we loose interpretation. Now, yeah, we're going to pick that like up. Yeah, people, pick that some, up. What some people consider jazz, I consider something else. Yeah, I'm not well, saying it's bad. It's just 
easy listening. Yeah. And then, wow. So it know. sounds like you are uh, going to come back and, and spend some time with us yes. again before yes. before too long. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like well, a good thank plan. Thank you for Most having definitely. me. It's like, so it's going to be a couple books yeah. coming soon. Yeah. Coming That'll soon. be pretty powerful and stories of, of Aurora's life. Uh, the Samson book is coming that yeah. Frida's been working yeah, Frida, on. Yeah, Frida, got to get you out. As, yeah. uh, as we know, and I've said, uh, Reverend Samson was a was a powerhouse. Yes, he was. Of all types of organization and forward thinking. Um, I was uh, at my friend David Bullock's pastoral thing, but your your dad was definitely this. Like I said, he was a he was a different type of pastor for a different type of time. Mm-hmm. So he approached things differently. And I'm sure the story behind him, as I just get bits and pieces from Frida about the books, the knowledge, the organizational skills, the way he delivers sermons and interpret Bible, is going to be interesting. <laughs> it, it's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, the preparation, the planning, and, and the prayer, and the process, and all that comes along with creating Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when you're when you engage in learning about somebody that you love and then finding the capacity to share that is it is a journey into itself you know it really is and so I'm finding myself in my own journey uh, exploring uh, the person who are already uh, adored and learning to just adore him even more when I realized what he had to go through mm-hmm. to do and be who he was and as Detroit is different and supportive of both of these people I want to do something special. We need to, through Black Coffee, you know, um, you know, they have this big thing with record record day, like where people can come and record stores, especially used record stores, they exchange records and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think we should do like in the book release, like a book day type thing, because mm-hmm. I'm sure you you know your dad, some of your dad's favorite books. He was a heck of a reader. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. you're a heck of mm-hmm. a reader. We should have some other books to accompany this. Mm-hmm in the book release where people can buy a book and then they can see some other books like you know like the real life amazon like if you like this you may be you know that's a Mm -hmm. great idea we and we need to talk offline to see where that that where that can go because i have a ton of of my dad's books you were saying that that i'd love and i'd love to go through that library yeah as well i'd love for you too so it's it's mutual all right all righty thank you thank you thank you thanks so much awesome as always thank you Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.